This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Amy Stanley, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Northwestern University. Most recently, Dr. Stanley is the author of Maidservants' Tales, Narrating Domestic and Global History in Eurasia, 1600 to 1900, in the April 2016 issue of the American Historical Review. Dr. Stanley, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me on. In your work, you've talked about prostitution in the early modern period. More recently, you've also talked about geisha even into the Meiji period and, and also maidservants' tales going throughout the early modern and modern period. So when talking about prostitution, not only female, but also male prostitution, what is happening around the time of the Meiji Restoration and what is the place of the Restoration in this topic? That's a good question. I think in order to understand what happens in the wake of the Meiji Restoration, it's important to know how prostitution was practiced and how it was organized in the Edo period, so the period that came directly before, which is what the bulk of my work has been about. Um, Sometimes when people talk about prostitution in the Edo period, they have these images like the ones we see often in woodblock prints of these very beautiful courtesans with these glamorous silk robes and bristling gold hair ornaments. And that's kind of become an iconic image of Japanese culture. And so people often have this conception that prostitution in the Edo period was something very glamorous, that urban men, particularly merchants who were very wealthy, went to an urban quote unquote pleasure quarter, such as Yoshiwara, the most famous one, and spent an enormous sum of money for a woman who is practically unattainable and enjoyed a night of exquisite artistic entertainment as well as sex. And what I concentrated on in my research was the world of prostitution that lay outside that perimeter. I talked a little bit about Yoshiwara, but what the point that I wanted to make was that prostitution was an economic enterprise and a labor relationship, and that throughout the business, whether you were a really kind of high-ranking Yoshiwara prostitute, or you were somebody who was indentured to a post station along a little tiny road in the mountains, uh, women worked according to indenture contracts. And that meant that their father, usually, or their guardian, who could be an uncle or grandfather or mother or brother, received a set amount of money up front in return for a certain number of years of her labor. The woman usually had to consent to this, and that was written into the contract, but the meaning of consent is very blurry when the person involved in the contract is a poor girl with no other choices, often underage. And this contract would be signed by her guardian, would be signed by the intermediary, would ultimately be signed by the brothel keeper, and it would send her to a brothel to work in prostitution, to see clients for a set number of years until her contract expired and she was, quote unquote, liberated if she didn't die first of abuse or venereal disease or starvation. So you can get the the picture that this is not exactly a glamorous endeavor. This was how prostitution was generally organized in the Edo period, and it was sanctioned by the shogunate and by various domains, and in fact often promoted because brothels sent tax money to a local, usually the the town, the post station, 
or sometimes um, to the harbor magistrate. So prostitution was a very important money-making endeavor. And this is one of the reasons why the government sanctioned it. It was also sanctioned for the reason that it was a business that allowed poor women to sacrifice themselves and their labor on behalf of usually their fathers. So it was bolstering the household system and kind of patriarchal authority in general. And also because there was a widespread belief that men needed access to women specifically in order to pursue sexual pleasure and that these uh, brothels provided a kind of service to the population. In the Meiji period, that logic started to break down and there were, had been criticisms of prostitution since the Edo period focusing on the oppression of women and the exploitation of poor families. And usually, though, the commentators would say, well, there's nothing to really be done about this. This is kind of a necessary evil. What else are these women going to do? In the Meiji period, these critiques gained force from the influence of kind of Western ideas about freedom and liberation, and also Western ideas about Christianity and the sanctity of the body and the idea that women who engaged in promiscuous behavior were morally wrong. And that had never been part of the Edo period discourse on prostitution. Um, in fact, prostitutes were often valorized because they'd sacrificed themselves rather than being condemned because they were promiscuous per se. And this kind of critique collided with an important legal innovation in 1872 in which there was a law that quote unquote liberated prostitutes and geisha. And that meant that it canceled all of the indenture contracts and it set women free from the brothels. And a later law declared that they did not have to pay back any of their indenture money. They were free to go. So that was the moment at which the system that had organized prostitution in the Edo period broke down completely. And there were reports from the quote unquote pleasure quarter in Yoshiwara of women streaming out of the district, carrying all of their possessions. And it seemed that women really did take advantage of this moment of liberation. However, a lot of them soon realized that they weren't able to do anything else, that their families still couldn't feed them if they returned to their families. And so they started to return to the brothels in a new type of system in which their labor was reorganized and given a new legal framework. So after this liberation edict, when the women returned to the brothels, they had to say that they were entering prostitution out of their own free will, their own volition, their own consent, which was different from the old contract system. And so while it was still the case that they were held to contracts where they had to serve out a certain amount of time, now it was required that they had said that they had chosen this. And this actually opened up, as my work has shown, a new critique of women who were worked in prostitution as self-interested and immoral actors, women who had chosen to do something that was degrading. You mentioned that in the early Meiji period, there's all, all these reforms, but you know, one, of the, one of the inconsistencies, I guess, of, of these early reforms and the, the kind of what we think of these very progressive idealists in the early Meiji period, you know, Ito Hirobumi comes to mind as this great champion of progressivism, but he was also reportedly a frequent client of the geisha quarters. Is that right? Yes. Uh, many of these Meiji statesmen were. And I don't think that that is at all surprising. Brothels were a site of kind of male homosocial activity, uh, bonding, you might say, um, where they had their drinks and conducted their business. And this was true for people who were 
lower class samurai, if they had enough money to frequent brothels, and it was true for merchants. And it was true even sometimes for peasants' sons who lived near post station where they could frequent a brothel and get a drink. And so this was a style of entertainment, a style of kind of socializing that men in that era were accustomed to and had not been taught to think of as problematic. They might have thought they felt sorry for the individual women involved or felt terrible that such a world existed in which people would be so poor in which they had to sell their daughters. But the morality of a man frequenting a prostitute and paying for sex was not something that was at issue. And so many of the people who were kind of progressive reformers, such as one of the early mayors of Kyoto City, Makimura Masanao, he was also a frequent visitor to the geisha houses and also to brothels. And people did not find that to be necessarily a contradiction. And in fact, brothel house proprietors um, and one of the examples I gave is a geisha house proprietor, actually, tea house proprietor in Kyoto's Gion district named Sugira, who is a proprietor of the famous Ichiriki tea house. They were often quite invested in what we would think of as progressive reforms. So those things that we think of now as a contradiction, either you are progressive and you're interested in the liberation of women and the equality of the sexes, or you're conservative and you're not, those categories don't map neatly onto Meiji thinkers or even ordinary people. Over time during the Meiji period, there is this kind of moral movement or almost a moral suasion movement against prostitution. I mean, who are the agents of this? I know in some cases it's upper class Japanese women who are promoting marriage as a way to end concubinage. But I mean, are the geisha themselves active at all in kind of reimaginations of prostitution? Yes. So here the difference between um, geisha and prostitutes becomes very important. In the early modern period, the first geisha were actually men, and they worked in the designated districts in big cities such as Yoshiwara and Edo, and they were primarily entertainers. And over the course of the 18th century, women started calling themselves geisha and taking on some of the actually costumes and the artistic kind of endeavors of the men who had called themselves geisha earlier. So these women were entertainers and the brothel keepers in Yoshiwara who wanted to keep their monopoly on their business uh, set out rules that stated that women who called themselves geisha were entertainers and they were not allowed to sell sex. But outside those districts, um, in places like post stations or other areas of the city of Edo, port cities like Niigata, the distinction between geisha and prostitutes was never quite so clear. And geisha were usually more, or geiko as they were called, were usually more artistically accomplished. Uh, and they did sell time and they did sell art, but often they also engaged in sex with their clients. So in depending on where you were, that distinction could be clearer or could be blurrier. I think one of the anxieties that geisha and their geisha house proprietors must have felt in the early Meiji era was over how to define a geisha and to imagine geisha as this coherent group of people when in fact they never had been in the Edo period. 
And so I think that Geisha House proprietors were very conscious of wanting to avoid what had become the stigmatized activity of prostitution. Prostitution had been associated with venereal disease, and the prominence of prostitution in Japan had attracted criticism from Western visitors, particularly from Christians, and increasingly from many reform-minded people, particularly women in Japan. And so geisha needed to be able to distinguish themselves in some way from prostitutes for political reasons, essentially. And so geisha house proprietors focused on things like their contributions to the civic good. So you see early geisha house proprietors, particularly in the city of Kyoto, investing in and actually becoming the principal of one of Japan's first elementary schools. And they also kind of continued their practice of giving money. You know, they used to give money in the form of tax revenue to create theaters or to build bridges. And now they donate their money to elementary schools and to hospitals and to um, facilities for retraining poor people in what quote unquote respectable occupations. And so you can see, especially I've, I've argued in the city of Kyoto, a real kind of effort on the part of geisha house proprietors to make themselves respectable through their civic engagement and through the way that they spend money. Geisha, on the other hand, have a new opportunity in the Meiji era to market themselves directly in newspapers. So you have more newspapers cropping up in the early 1870s and they report on local issues and events. And often you see geisha showing up in one or two lines about kind of what's going on around town and they appear by name. And so they have this chance to advertise themselves and to create their own image. And many geisha, you see them doing enlightened things or calling themselves enlightenment geisha they consume Western food and Western beer, or they just, you know, advertise that they're teaching themselves English. And often you see them featured in the newspaper for donating money to elementary schools. So there's an, a point in the early 1870s where geisha are very consciously, I think, trying to associate themselves with the ideals of enlightenment and civic virtue and education. As a way to make themselves more respectable in society? I think as a way to... On the part of geisha house masters who really are worried about the political impact on their business from this kind of new discourse about prostitution being dirty and immoral and the legal impact on their business of the liberation edict in particular, they are the ones who are trying to distinguish their business from prostitution by doing all these kind of enlightened activities and civic virtue. I think that the geisha themselves had kind of contradictory and mixed motives that are that are available for lots of different kinds of interpretations. One is that geisha donated to schools because they hadn't been allowed that kind of education themselves. Another is that they were trying to distinguish themselves from other geisha. It's a kind of marketing thing. Well, I am the studious, enlightened geisha, and these other geisha are just kind of backward and old-fashioned. My name is in the newspaper. Look at me. And another interpretation is that they had become known from the Edo period as trendsetters, as people who kind of pursued the latest fashions and actually set expectations for what was appropriate feminine behavior. And in the early 1870s, that was things like learning English and going to school and being civilized and enlightened. Speaking of this distinction between geisha and prostitute, one of the things that always comes up in my classes 
is this very straight line between prostitute and geisha. I always try to tell the students, you know, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Is this a product of this moment in the Meiji period when the women are taking on these more charitable activities? Um, I don't think so. I think there is a longer and more complicated history that has to do with, as I said, the distinctions within the quarter of Yoshiwara and Edo. Also, the fact that shogunate, uh, shogunate magistrates tended to look at prostitution differently from what they called machi geisha, town geisha, which were girls who were sent out by their parents to go entertain at parties. And the magistrates themselves were somewhat concerned about the idea that those girls who were being sent out by their parents to entertain were engaged in prostitution. And if so, they were not working under the contract system. They were being essentially pimped by their own parents, and that would be a form of illegal prostitution. So the magistrates themselves were confused about the line, but they were interested in making some sort of distinction, even if they didn't quite know where it was. And I think that what you see here is a kind of continuity in that there is a gradation between prostitution and working as a geisha in the Edo period and into the early Meiji period. All kinds of people are interested in drawing a line someplace. They just don't agree on where that line should go. And it's in the 1870s, around the time of the liberation edict, that it becomes much more important for geisha house masters to draw the line and say, we do not engage in this. Now, the reality, of course, is that they still did exchange money for sex, and that this is something that persisted for a while. And I think that this impulse to kind of draw the line and continue through the 20th century, and especially in the wake of World War II during the occupation era, when um, servicemen would go home and say that they'd spent time with people that they called geisha girls who were not necessarily geisha, not necessarily prostitutes, just Japanese women, that the, the kind of importance of drawing this line and saying, first of all, Japanese women are not all geisha. <laughs> Secondly, geisha are this historical phenomenon, right? And the geisha have these artistic accomplishments and you're talking about a specific group of people. And third, geisha are not prostitutes. Drawing those lines became very important. And I think that is when the lines really hardened. And so today, of course, you can say definitively that geisha are not prostitutes. But that in itself is the result of a historical process of drawing boundaries. Speaking of the soldiers, I've always reminded of this this one photograph of American GIs. Who all seem to be photographers, but they're all standing around, you know, one woman in a in, you know geisha style outfit, and they're all just taking photos of her. And I always put this up in class and you know, talking. Of, you know, here's an example of the exoticized Asian female. Yeah, there is a um, there's a wonderful book by Naoko Shibusawa called America's Geisha Ally. It looks at how the image of the geisha was used to kind of domesticate uh, Japan or make it make Japan palatable as an ally when it had been an enemy. It's really wonderful in depth look at how that happened. I was also reading about the this Baby Son magazine. Or the oh, yes. book, Baby Sun. Uh, all of the images were exactly what we were talking about. It's kind of all Asian women, all Japanese women being imagined as geisha from the perspective of these male servicemen. Right. And that's what makes it such a fraught topic to discuss, because there is no doubt that the geisha has been this kind of exoticized, orientalizing, and racist image in the minds of Americans. And so to take 
geisha as a historical topic and to kind of think about how that category of geisha was constructed and who fell into it and who didn't and really kind of take the women who did that work seriously is necessarily a political project and also a very difficult one because there's so many issues that become entangled in that. And it's an image that's continued to be marketed for tourist materials, right? I mean, if you if you go onto like the Japan Travel Bureau website, of course, you know the the images that you see it's bullet trains. There's always the Michael-san in Kyoto. It's like you know, go see the traditional Kyoto, and and here is the traditional geisha. Yes, and I think you know that you can see also a kind of continuity there, which is that geisha and geisha houses are performing a civic function. And that they are advertising their city and they are bringing in tourist revenue. And that is actually what geisha did in the early Meiji period. And it's what they did in many places in the Edo period. So this is, you know, a legitimate activity. And this is what the geisha house masters thought that they were doing when they were donating to elementary schools and hospitals. So I actually see that as something that is incredibly familiar to me. that your current project is Stranger in the Shogun City, where you're talking about the urban history of Edo through the perspective of one woman. Do you care to talk about that a little bit? Yes, this is my current project. So of course, I love talking about it. My protagonist is a woman named Tsuneno, who was born in the early 1800s, probably around 1803 or 1804. She was the daughter of a temple family, a Buddhist priest's daughter in a little village in Echigo province, which is now Niigata. And she was brought up in style, actually, the, the family was fairly wealthy and taught how to read and taught how all the traditional feminine accomplishments and married off when she was 14 years old to another Buddhist priest in a different province in Dewa, um, had a completely uneventful marriage, but was divorced after 10 years and sent home and then was married off two more times, and both times she was divorced and sent home. Finally, she had enough. Her family was planning to marry her off for a fourth time to a widower. She decided she did not want to do that, and so she ran away to the city of Edo, which she had always wanted to see. And once she was in Edo, she wrote back to her parents, asking them to send her money, send her clothes, telling them all of the things that she needed. And they responded saying, you're crazy, you ran away, we're cutting you off. And she then had to make her a life for herself in the city, uh, first working as a maidservant, then being kind of an errand runner for a townsman who was building a residence for his concubine in the theater district. And then eventually, after kind of going around to various parts of the city and doing these odd jobs, she met a man she'd known from home who she hadn't seen in, I think it was 24 years. And he was trying to make it as a masterless samurai in Edo. He was looking for employment in a warrior household and she married him. And they had a very difficult time of it because Edo was going through an economic downturn in the wake of the temple reforms in which the shogunate really clamped down and tried to micromanage the city's economy. 
And they really had a very difficult time. They had no money, they had no clothes. But eventually, this last husband of hers found employment with the Edo City Magistrate, um, one of the more famous Edo City Magistrates, um, Toyama Kinshiro, who's often on television as kind of a wise magistrate. He's kind of a folk hero. Um, but he was a real historical person. And Tsuneno's husband found work with him. And she also found work in his household and um, lived the rest of her life in Edo in the service of the city magistrate. So. I am telling Tsuneno's story, which has all kinds of dramatic turns in it, as a way of introducing the city of Edo and Japanese history in the early 19th century to a general audience of readers who have no idea about Japan or about Edo or about any of it. So it's a very different project for me. I've noticed a lot of your work has this kind of broad, multi-century focus. I mean, your recent article in American Historical Review is 1600 to 1900. This book also sounds like it's going to have this kind of almost long durée approach. In that in that perspective, how important is the date 1868? Do you have any thoughts on this? What was 1868 a moment of rupture, or really are we making too much out of this date? Oh, that's a good question. So um, this book that I'm working on now is very much an early to mid 19th century book. It ends in actually 1853, the year that Tsuneno died is the same year that um, Perry arrived. So I do think actually that there is something about that break, whether you put it in 1853 or in 1868, that is really important. So I wouldn't say that we're making too much of that date itself or that we're making too much of the transition. I mean, if you study the lives of, for example, prostitutes and geisha, you can see that, you know, things didn't change for them right away and it didn't change for all women at the same time. But the political developments that followed the restoration, which reorganized the terms of their labor, I think did have real consequences for them. Now, in my other work, I wrote a article that you just referred to about maidservants in global history, I've argued that often, if you take the work and the lives of lower class women seriously, you see more continuity over space and time than historians who work on men or more conventional political subjects, then they might recognize. And I think that's true. In the case of maidservants, I argued in that article that the story of the girl who leaves the countryside for the city and works in maid service and then gets married and stays in the city for the rest of her life is a common one. And that you can see it in Venice in the 16th century and in London in the 17th century and in Paris in the 18th century and in Edo in the 19th century. And that story in its broadest outlines is shared across space and across time. And it doesn't really start to change until the 20th century. So I think that I'm kind of trying to say two things. I do think that this period does mark a rupture in Japanese history. I also think that it depends on who you look at, how clearly you can see that break. So if you are looking at maidservants and lower class women, you might not see that date as being absolute or that rupture as being so kind of immediate. But I think it caused other changes that became more evident in their lives over time. 
And I think it's also always an important thing to think about when you're thinking about periodization, right, which is really what this debate is about, is not only where you're talking about. So, you know, 1868 is really important in Japan, not necessarily so important to, in other places, but also who you're talking about, right? It's really important to, for example, samurai and aizu, uh, probably, you know, 1868, 1869, um, maybe not so important for a maidservant in the city of Edo. And so all of these dates are necessarily kind of historical inventions and constructions that allow us to make some arguments very clearly and prevent us from making others. I do think it's important. I do think, you know, if you're a resident, for example, of the city of Kyoto, the fact that the restoration happens and the, the emperor moves, that's catastrophic for people there. I mean, the city lost a huge portion of its population. Um, so while I wouldn't say, you know, that it is absolutely a change that's felt by everybody at, in the archipelago in the same way at the same time, it really is a consequential date. If we could pivot now to your classroom teaching, what kind of themes do you use when you talk about the Meiji period to your students? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I haven't taught my Meiji course in a really long time. I try in general, because I come from women's history and gender history as my primary interest, to talk about women and their experiences as much as possible. And luckily, that's really easy in the Meiji period uh, because women's lives often change dramatically over the course of that era. So, of course, I talk about geisha. I talk about women who worked in factories. I talk about changing fashion for some women and not for others. And I always use this wonderful book, Makiko's Diary, in which a um, I think it's a pharmacist's wife in Kyoto describes her daily life around 1911. And it's a really wonderful source because you can see what really hasn't changed very much, you know, the role of the daughter-in-law in the family. But and yet, you know, her husband is going out and, you know, kind of trying trying new types of food and he's involved in a Western painting society. Um, and so it really helps students think about how gender and class and location really were kind of these these filters that determined how the changes of that era reached into your life. I use the same book. You're absolutely right. It's a fascinating uh, diary because talking about, you know, she remarks, you know, oh, we got our first electric light bulb. It's so bright. <laughs> or, you know, I, I finally rode around in one of those new rickshaws with rubber tires. It's so much smoother. Yes, than yes. It's wonderful. So you can see, you know, th those modern implements, I guess you could call them, that come in and they are remarkable for these people. And so some of these these introduction of new things really are remarkable to the point where they're writing them down in the diary. I also, <laughs> I always thought it'd be fun to go back and try out some of the recipes. Oh, yeah. That she so, writes you know, about. There's that wonderful scene where she's trying to make frozen tofu. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I actually used to ask that as a, as a question for an in-class quiz. Where do you make frozen tofu? Yeah. You, know, you had to put it on the roof. On the roof. Um, <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So, in, but it's funny because I don't think that my strategy for Meiji history when I teach that is much different from my strategy for global history, which I also teach. I teach global history from 1500 to 1850. And what I really try to do as much as possible 
is focus on ordinary people in their lives and how their lives were shaped by and in turn shaped this kind of grand historical narrative. I think that's really what's closest to my research interests. And I think it actually engages the students too, because this is when they're coming of age, you know, my students are traditional college age students. They're trying to think about how their lives are intertwined with the, the world that they live in and how they are going to be able to shape the world going forward, um, even though they themselves are probably going to be insignificant people. And then how the time that they live in is going to shape the course of their lives. And so I think that focusing on the very human um, dimensions of of history is, or that kind of human scale is really important. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.